0: Thanks, worship team. Good morning. Good morning. If we haven't met yet, my name is Sam. Um, I have the privilege of working with our young adults across all four of our campuses, and I've got the opportunity uh, to guide us as we continue in our Fruit of the Spirit series this morning. But before we dive in and, and pray, it's time for us to work on our memory verse. And you know, the last couple weeks, I know what you've been doing. You've been cheating because the words have been on the screen. So I had a little chat with Aaron, who's running ProPresenter. We're not going to put the verse on the screen, and we're actually going to see how we're doing with our memory verse. So Galatians 5, 22 and 23, let's say it together. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Do me a favor, just give yourselves a hand. I was kind of like a golf clap, but that's okay. We'll let it slide. (laughs) Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a gift it is to be gathered together here at Highland this morning. Um, And as we continue through our series on the fruit of the Spirit, as we look at the fruit of faithfulness today, may you guide us, empower us by your Spirit to be faithful followers of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Have you heard the name David Brainerd? Not what we'd call a household name by any means. We actually only know about him because one of his closest friends was Jonathan Edwards. You probably know the name Jonathan Edwards, maybe the most famous Puritan pastor in all of America. He was the guy that preached sinners in the hands of an angry God. Don't worry, I'm not preaching that sermon this morning. But he and Edwards were friends. Brainerd was born in 1718 in Puritan, America. And growing up, as he got closer to college age, he desired to become a pastor. So he enrolled at Yale. This might surprise some of us, but Harvard, Yale, and the Ivy League institutions, most of them are actually founded to become training grounds for pastors. Lots changed in the last couple of centuries, hasn't it? But he enrolled at Yale to become a pastor. But the summer before he started classes, God got a hold of his life in a radical way, what he later called his conversion experience, when he became a Christian, and he was just on fire for the Lord, and he started classes at Yale, and and his experience was similar to many of the other students. Some would say that there was this revival happening at Yale when he was a student. And the professors, for some reason, didn't really like that, that the students were on fire, and there was this tension, this conflict between the faculty and the staff, and between Brainerd and the rest of the students at Yale. And in a weak moment, Brainerd said to one of his professors, you have no more grace than a chair. And if you're a student, I wouldn't recommend using that line of class tomorrow because it got Brainerd expelled. He was actually expelled because of that conflict, but they blamed it on his one week moment. And Brainerd did his best to get back into the program. He, he wrote a letter. He apologized. And they said, yep, nope, you're not coming back. You can't go to school here. Which to us is like, no big deal. Go somewhere else. That's not how it worked then. In order to practice as a minister, to be a pastor in 1740 in America, you had to graduate from Harvard, Yale, or one of the European institutions. So there was no way for him to become a pastor. The door was slammed shut. Can you imagine what that'd feel like? a 20-year-old. Young man who has this desire to serve the Lord, desire to become a pastor, and God just slams the door. But as you know, God always knows what He's doing, He's sovereign. And when He closed one door, He opened another. Opened the door for him to become a missionary to Native Americans. So He started working in various villages. He was preaching, He was sharing the gospel. He even started translating scripture into their language. It was incredible. But then he contracted a disease. We don't know what it was, but it was very similar to tuberculosis. It was debilitating. It was horrible. He'd have these coughing fits. His whole body would convulse. He'd be vomiting blood. And he tried to do both. He tried to manage his health and serve the Lord in ministry. And he got to the point his health was so bad he had to leave the field. And he actually moved in with Jonathan Edwards and his family. And one of Edwards' daughters tried to nurse, him back, nurse Brainerd back to health but it was to no avail. He died at the age of 29. How do we feel when we hear an account like that? Is our response like this? God, what are you doing? 29? What a waste of potential. Think of all the people he, he could have impacted. Think of the lives that you could have saved. Think of the sermons he could have preached. Think of the Bible he could have translated. Think of the years of faithful ministry he could have had, and you take him at 29. What are you doing? Is that how we feel? Sometimes. But I'm convinced that David Brainerd, when he crossed into eternity, heard the words, Well done, good and faithful servant. Not because he maximized his potential, but because he was faithful to his calling. I think it's easy for us to measure ministry success in quantity. How many people got saved? How many people went to districts this year? How many guys were at no regrets? How many people did we get to fill out reply cards? How big is the church? How fast is it growing? How many books did she sell? How many books did they write? We measure success in quantity. Or in less biblical terms, isn't that how we we measure success just in general? How much money are they making? How fast are they growing? How many followers do they have on Instagram? How many views did their video on TikTok get? That's how our world measures success. But I don't think that's how God measures success. We live in a world where greatness is greater than faithfulness. We live in a world where success is greater than consistency. We live in a world where getting rich quick is far greater than saving just a little bit every day. But greatness is not a fruit of the Spirit. Popularity is not a fruit of the Spirit. Maximizing potential is not a fruit of the Spirit. Making as much money as you can is not a fruit of the Spirit. But faithfulness is. When we get to heaven, I have a feeling that we might just be a little bit surprised at who the heavenly celebrities might be. You know, the people who are, are seated at the seat of honor next to Jesus, or close to Jesus, I don't think it's going to be the American pastor celebrities. I could be wrong. But I think the heavenly celebrities are going to be people that we have no clue who they are. It's the missionary couple that serves for decades on the field, faithfully, and they see just a handful of converts. Can you imagine how easy it would be just to throw in the towel if you're serving in a foreign country and you see almost no fruit from your labor? And that's faithfulness. Or think of the pastor who serves in a, small, rural country church for decades, without the popularity, without the success, without the accolades, without the podcasts, without the book contracts, but also without the scandal and impropriety. It's faithfulness. Or how about the kindergarten Sunday school teacher who shows up week in and week out to instill the truth of God's word in the hearts of those youngsters that someday will grow into saving faith? That's faithfulness. Those are the heroes of the faith. But we don't celebrate them very often, do we? Greatness isn't a fruit of the Spirit, but faithfulness is. So how do we define faithfulness today? Well, if you're taking notes, this would be a very important thing to write down. It's our big idea. It's going to be on the screen. This is how I'll define faithfulness. Keep your commitments and commit to consistency. Faithfulness, keep your commitments and commit to consistency. Now, if we scroll through the pages of Scripture... And we were to ask, now, who is the greatest example of faithfulness in all of the Bible? What would you say? This is one of the times the Sunday school answer is correct. Jesus. Jesus is the greatest example of faithfulness in all of Scripture. I want to look at Revelation chapter 1. In uh, Revelation's last book of the New Testament. And John's looking ahead to what's going to happen in the future. And and in the beginning, I think there's something that he writes in his introduction that we often might miss. Revelation 1 verse 4. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. Now, if you pulled out your pocket Greek New Testament, as I'm sure all of you brought today, and you read that verse in the Greek, here's what it would sound like. Verse five Jesus Christ, the faithful Martis. Did I ring a bell. Sounds a little bit like our English word martyr, doesn't it? That's actually because it's the same word. The Greek word that we translate witness and martyr is the same word in the Greek. It's the word martyrs. Jesus Christ, the faithful martyr. Huh. We probably don't think about Jesus as a martyr very often, do we? We think of someone who dies for Jesus as a martyr, but Jesus as a martyr? But he takes martyrdom to a whole new level, right? Faithfulness and, and martyrdom are definitely closely connected because you can really see when, when someone, where someone's priorities are when their life is on the line, Right? But Jesus doesn't just die for one person. He dies for all of us. He died for the sin in the entire world. I love what Hebrews says, for the joy set before him endured the cross. Jesus wasn't forced to go to Calvary. He chose to die for you and die for me so that we might have a right relationship with the Father. Have you ever thought that while Jesus on the cross, conceivably, he could have called down a million angels to come rescue him, to torment his captors and to remove him from the pain that he was experiencing? But he didn't. He willingly went through with the greatest imaginable pain in the history of the world to pay for your sin and my sin. That is the greatest act of faithfulness in history. It's Jesus. If we want to know faithfulness, we don't have to look any farther than the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Do you know him? Do you have a relationship with Jesus? Have you experienced his faithfulness? Have you turned away from your sin by the power of the Spirit and trusted in him for your salvation? That is the most important decision that you and I can make. And if we wanna live lives of faithfulness, we can't unless we know Jesus. He's our model of what it means to live a faithful life. And when you and I decide to follow him, if you're a Christ follower here today, we make a commitment. And this is not like a low bar commitment. Your commitment to Jesus as a Christian is the highest bar commitment of your entire life. Your commitment to Jesus is far stronger, far greater than your commitment to your employer. If you work, your work contract is likely what we'd call an at-will contract. That's how most are written in the state of Wisconsin, meaning that you can leave your job at any time without legal repercussions. not saying you should walk in and resign tomorrow. I'm just saying that's how your contract's probably written. Our commitment to Jesus is greater than our commitment to an employer. Or how about this? Your commitment, my commitment to Jesus, is greater than our commitment to a sports team. Though some of you filed for divorce from the Packers after their loss a couple of weeks ago. Though I did talk to Isaiah and Jared. They said the Bears are accepting applications for new fans. So, (laughs) big surprise. Did you know that your commitment to Jesus is even greater than your commitment to your spouse? Maybe when you got married, if you're married, or at least in our wedding, our vows included that phrase, until death do us part. Why do we include that? Well, because a marriage covenant, a marriage promise, a marriage commitment is actually only binding this side of eternity. Jesus is clear in Matthew 22 that there isn't marriage in eternity, at least in an earthly sense, that no one's married or given in marriage in in heaven, that actually the church, all genuine believers are called the bride of Christ, that we're going to be united with Christ for all of eternity. And what's the first meal that we get to share in eternity? It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's the wedding reception. We're going to be united with Jesus as the bride of Christ for all of eternity. Do I know what that looks like exactly? No. But the picture is clear. When we get to heaven, who is the most important relationship in your life and in my life? Jesus. Wait, hold on a second. Shouldn't our answer be the same today? Who's the most important person in your life and in my life? Is it Jesus or is it your spouse, your boss, your kids, your grandkids, a best friend? When we say yes to Jesus, we make the biggest commitment, the most important commitment of our life. When we say yes to Jesus, he's not just our Savior. He's also our Lord, our boss, and our master. When we say yes to Jesus, we're committing to follow him no matter what. When we say yes to Jesus, we get the gift of the greatest best friend on the planet, when we say yes to Jesus, he becomes the most important person in your life and in my life. Faithfulness means that we, com- we keep our commitment to Christ. But what does that look like practically? Well, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew 25. Where Jesus gives us a great picture of what faithfulness looks like in everyday life. And here in Matthew 25, Jesus is telling parables. Parables, an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Jesus taught him parables all the time. Face value, a really simple story. But there was always a deeper spiritual truth that the listener had to try to discern and figure out and understand. And here he's telling parables about the kingdom. Kingdom is Jesus' rule and reign coming to earth. He's looking ahead to the last day. He's actually looking ahead to judgment day when each one of us will give an account to our, for our life before Christ. That's what he looks at. So he tells a, a story to kind of set the stage, give us a picture of what that day might look like. So he sets up the scenario. There's a master who presumably has a ton of money. He's been very blessed by the Lord. He's also a good master. He has a, a bunch of servants. And he pulls three of these servants aside and he says, gentlemen, I'm going away on a journey. I don't know how long I'm going to be gone. And I'm going to give you each some different resources of mine, some money I want you to invest it faithfully while I'm away. So one servant gets five talents, one gets two, one gets one. The translation talent is a bit unfortunate because when we hear the word talent, we think of like a gift or an ability. But in the Greek text, the word talent is actually a unit of measure in money, the currency. Now five talents, it doesn't sound like a lot of money. It's like, oh, it's like five bucks, actually, not quite. A talent was 6,000 denarii and one denarius was one day's wage. So, I know it's not that early anymore. We probably can do just a little bit of math, so bear with me. One way to measure how much a talent would be worth would be an earning potential to think in terms of how much somebody could make in a day's wage today compared to then. So if a denarius was a day's wage, I think, let's say somebody makes $20 an hour today. Maybe you make more, maybe you make less, but that's maybe a good benchmark um, for easy mental math, at least for me. And then they work eight hours a day. That's $160 a day. Maybe that's what a denarius is worth. Multiply that by 6,000, which is what a talent was worth. How much do we have? It's about a million. You could argue that a talent was $1 million. We're not talking about a Ben Franklin. We're not talking about Andrew Jackson. We're talking about a million dollars. And the one got five of them. I mean, that sounds nice today, doesn't it? $5 million check. But it's not their money. It's the master's money. And that changes the game just a little bit. And the instructions are implicit. Invest this well. So the first two, they get to work, they pull out their Robinhood app and invest in the latest cryptocurrency. And, I'm just kidding. <laughs> they faithfully invest the money. And then there's the third servant. He takes his shovel, <laughs> digs a hole in the backyard and dumps the whole million into the ground. And when the, the master returns, you can imagine he was thrilled with the third servant. Uh uh-uh. He had some not nice things to say. But that's not what I want to look at. I actually want to look at the first two. Look at Matthew 25, verse 19. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them, and he who received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I've made five talents more. His master said to him, "'Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I'll set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master.' And he also who had the two talents came forward saying, "'Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I made two talents more.' His master said to him, "'Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I'll set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master.' We've got to make sure we understand what Jesus isn't saying. He's not saying that we earn our salvation by being faithful. That's not our ticket to entrance into the kingdom. No, we're saved by faith in what Christ has done. For those first two servants, they had a relationship with the master. They loved the master. And out of that relationship came their faithfulness. And it's a picture of Judgment Day when we're standing before Christ, giving account of our entire life. I hope that's a phrase that all of us want to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. But did you notice what Jesus didn't say? He didn't say, well done, good and successful servant. He didn't say, well done, good and popular servant. Well done, good and profitable servant. Well done, good and faithful. Maybe we've never thought about this text that closely, but that word is crucial. Because I'm convinced that those two servants, they could have made more money. They could have done a better job investing. Why? Because there's always more money to make. There's always a better investment. There's always another meeting to have. There's always another email to send. There's always a better investment scheme when you look back in retrospect. They could have done better, but Jesus doesn't praise them for maximizing their potential. He praises them for their faithfulness. Faithfulness and success are not the same thing. Faithfulness and fulfilled potential. Are not the same thing. I'm convinced that one of the greatest idols in America in 2022 is the idol of fulfilled potential, which means that one of the greatest tragedies in our world is unfulfilled potential. And to find it, you don't have to look very far, All you've got to do is go to the stereotypical graduation ceremony and hear the commencement address. And what what does 99% of them sound like? Dream big, shoot for the stars, be whoever you want to be. Maximize your potential. You heard that speech before? I certainly have. And this pressure for us to maximize our potential, it comes out in every area of life. Think about work, think about your vocation. Pressure to climb the corporate ladder, be everything that you can be, make as much money as possible. Set five-year and 10-year goals. Become that, that leader, that top dog in whatever your field is. Maximize your potential. Or maybe it's in athletics. Maybe it's a young man, junior year, soccer season, walks into his coach's office right before the season starts and says, Coach, I'm hanging up the cleats. I can't do music and soccer. I had to pick. And the coach shakes his head and says, you have so much potential and you're squandering it. Or maybe the idol of fulfilled potential is not a reality in your heart or my heart, but the idol is projected onto your kids or your grandkids. And you're living vicariously through them, wanting them to maximize their potential, them be everything that they can be, whether it's in music or sports or academics. Think of the girl, sophomore year. Pressure from her parents to get the 4.0, take all the AP classes, get the full-ride scholarship to the best school. And then second semester, junior year, she's taken AP bio, A minus, B plus. There goes the 4.0. Mom and dad are ticked and the pressure of unfulfilled potential keeps her up at night. Have you ever thought that maybe Jesus doesn't want your kids or your grandkids to maximize their athletic or academic or musical potential? Have you ever thought about how dangerous it is for you or I to project on our kids the importance of of music, the importance of sports, the importance of school, over and above our relationship with Jesus? A passionate relationship with Christ is not just taught, it's caught. And if our kids see us, our grandkids see us modeling anything as more important than Jesus, it's dangerous. God's not calling us to fulfill our potential, but to be faithful to our calling. And I think we hear the same narrative spiritually. At least my generation has. My generation has read books like Do Hard Things and Radical, which are good books, but they set the bar in the stratosphere, praising the proverbial 14-year-old who raises a million dollars for charity or the couple who drops everything and goes to the mission field and sees 3,000 converts in three years. Are those great things? Yeah, they're awesome things. But success is not the right metric. Faithfulness is. I'm convinced that God is not that concerned about you and I, maximizing our spiritual potential, he's far more concerned about daily faithfulness. Let me, pr- let, me pr- let me prove it to you. Think of the prophets. Think of Elijah. Elijah was God's man, one of the best preachers to ever walk the earth. And then where does he find himself for three years placed by God at, at a brook? He was there up to three years next to a stream. And who heard him preach? The ravens, you think they were saved by his preaching? I don't think so. And you could see that same narrative with prophet after prophet in the Old Testament, sidelined by God. How does that make sense? What a waste of potential. Or how about this? How about Sabbath? God created the world in six, literal, or six days, in, in, which I believe are six literal days, rested on the seventh. Not because he was tired, not because he needed to take a nap, but as a model for you and for me. That we work for six days and then we take a break. Not just to take a nap, but to focus on God and his people. And if you're entrepreneurial, you're thinking, man, think of all the money I could make on that seventh day. Think of all the profit I'm missing out on. But God says, it's not the most important thing, not to maximize your potential, but to focus on me and my people. That's faithfulness. Or how about 1 Corinthians chapter 7? It's Paul's chapter on singleness. And he, he says some really radical things. He says, I wish all of you were like me, single. This is radical because the kingdom benefits. But if you think that's radical, he says this a little bit later in the chapter. But the married man, later the married woman, they're anxious about worldly things, how to please their spouse, and their interests are divided. What? Okay, well, we've got to understand what he means by worldly. Worldly doesn't mean sinful worldly just means earthly or temporal but here's what he's saying when i got married a little over 3 years ago i forfeited my ministry and my church potential that my interests are divided now obviously there's overlap between home and ministry they're not it's not like a clean split right that's parents we've ministry to do in our home but what paul is saying is that the single believer actually is is gonna be able to do more for the church than somebody who's married. And is that a bad thing? Is that a sinful thing? No, it's a reality because God isn't calling us to maximize our potential, but he's calling us to be faithful to our calling. God values consistent daily faithfulness day in and day out. Slow and steady wins the race. The Christian life, it's not a sprint But a marathon, it's not just about starting well, but running well and finishing well. We need to be faithful to our calling. So how would we describe our calling? In terms of the mission statement at Highland, our calling is to take the next step in our walk with Christ. And those next steps happen day in and day out in daily faithfulness. Some of you, some of us are are waiting for that big event to jumpstart our faith. And to get us back in the word and to get us back in prayer. Some of you were waiting for no regrets yesterday to jumpstart your faith. And I'm not knocking no regrets. Because if you weren't here yesterday, I'm just gonna be honest. Like you really missed out. It was awesome. And I'm not saying that because I was teaching. I wasn't. I just was scribbling notes down all day. It's an awesome day. But we can't wait for the big conference to jumpstart our faith. <laughs> Faithfulness starts today. It starts with our spiritual disciplines. What's your relationship with this been like lately? You're reading it? Are you reading it and then forgetting what you read 10 minutes later? Are we memorizing it? Are we meditating on it? Are we talking to others about it? Are we reading it with our families? Have you ever thought about the privilege that if we want to hear from God, all we need to do is open this Word? Amazing. We also need to be consistent in our prayer. Think of 1 Thessalonians where Paul writes that we should pray without ceasing, that we should pray continually. How have we been doing in that lately? I mean, have you thought about the privilege that, that we can talk to God anytime and anywhere? We don't need a mediator. We don't need a magic phrase. We don't need a special prayer room or a prayer closet. We can go to God anytime and he'll hear us. What a gift. How have we been doing in prayer? Maybe we can endeavor to grow this week in prayer praying scripture, creating a prayer list, making a prayer calendar, finding a prayer partner, praying with your family more than just the the pre-meal prayer, praying with your spouse before you go to bed. Faithfulness means that we engage in a spiritual discipline even when we don't always feel like it. In the morning, it's a lot easier to grab that snooze button and go click and say, I'm going to take another nine minutes, thank you. But faithfulness means that even when we don't have 100% of the drive and the desire that we still work to engage our heart in those spiritual disciplines. We've got to be consistent in our witness and talking to others about Christ. Maybe you've heard this year, a number of recent years, I think it's one of Pastor Dave's New Year's resolutions every year, by the power of the Spirit to lead one person to Christ in 2022. And, you know, the conversations that Pastor Dave and I have are usually about the same every year, It's usually about three days into 2022. I look into my office and I look at my watch and Pastor Dave walks in and said, I filled my goal. And I told him a couple weeks ago, I said, Pastor Dave, it's time to set the bar a little higher. (laughs) Now, Pastor Dave's up here and then there's the rest of us. But do you think it's realistic as a follower of Christ to, to set the goal by the power of the Holy Spirit to lead one person to Jesus this year? Do you think that's a good goal? Yeah, I think it's a great goal. Frankly, it's not like a, a, a like through-the-roof goal. That's a realistic goal. But have you thought, well, what would happen if 500 of us in the Highland family decided this year that was going to be our goal? And let's say empowered by the Spirit, 500 people come to Christ. Let's say we do that for the next decade. And then every person who's led to Christ makes that their goal the next year. And the next year, after a decade, do you know how many people that would be? a quarter of a 1000000 It's Isn't that wild? And that's just one person a year. Daily faithfulness, it's not flashy. It doesn't look heroic. But daily faithfulness will change the world for Christ. So we need to ask, how can I be faithful today? Not tomorrow, not next week, not next year. Today is the only day that's guaranteed. And we need to be faithful today. We should celebrate stories of daily faithfulness. The grandmother who gets on her knees and prays for an hour every single day for years for just about everything. Or how about the man who reads his Bible cover to cover every year and has done it for 30 years. It's faithfulness. Or you take a look at a friend's Bible and it's like literally falling apart because how much they've savored and soaked on God's word. That is faithfulness. Faithfulness. Or the brother or sister that's been through the valley of the shadow of death. And they still find a way to praise God in the midst of it. That is faithfulness. It's not flashy. It's not heroic. But it's what God desires out of us, out of his people. And when we have that relationship with Jesus, our our goal is, yes, we want to be faithful to Jesus. But that faithfulness also applies to our relationships with one another and our horizontal relationships. Because faithfulness is a fruit of the Spirit, you would expect, I would expect, that faithfulness is, that Christians rather are the best commitment keepers in the world. They expect that Christians are the best promise keepers, promise fulfillers in the world, on the planet. So wouldn't we expect that divorce rates within the church would be fractional of the world? What I expect—it's a bit dated—but Barna in 2008 asked that same question. Here's what they found: for people who identified as born again and evangelical, the divorce rate was 32 percent. For all other adults, it's 33 percent. If you know anything about statistics, that's identical. I'm not here to bring the hammer down today on somebody that's been divorced. In church circles, sometimes divorce can feel like the unforgivable sin. It's not. And Jesus provides a concession. Paul provides another in 1 Corinthians 7. Not a command, but a concession for divorce. But I don't want to talk to those in the room who have been divorced today. I want to talk to you who are married. If you're married today, you have made a commitment to your spouse before God that you'll be faithful every single day for the rest of your life. That's not easy. And frankly, faithfulness to your spouse is far deeper than just not cheating. Faithfulness means sacrificing daily, loving daily, cherishing daily, putting the needs of our spouse before our own daily. Be faithful to your spouse I had a woman after the eight o'clock service walk up to me and and say, my husband and I are coming up on 53 years. And I said, praise the Lord, why don't you teach at 1030? (laughs) Okay, maybe I didn't say that. I felt a little hypocritical with my three years. (laughs) And if that's you, you know it's not easy every day. But that's the goal, to be faithful day in and day out. And then look at your watch and think, man, it's been 53 years. Praise the Lord. Now, if you're a student, you've made a commitment to learn. You've made a commitment to be the best student you can be. Have you ever thought that Colossians 3.23 applies to your studies? That whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart as working for the Lord and not for men. So if you're a student, be the best student you can be. Take that phone, leave it in your locker, or even better, leave it at home. Take great notes. Don't cheat on your exams. Be a great student, or if you're an employee, you've made a commitment to your employer. Work as hard as you can. Don't steal time from your employee, employer. If you've made a commitment to stay for a certain amount of time, then, then do your best to fulfill the commitment. I'm a millennial, so I have a free pass to pick on millennials. <laughs> sometimes millennials are a little scared of commitment. Maybe you've heard people joke about that before, um, which I think sometimes is true where uh, there's this reality called the millennial maybe, and it sounds like this. Sam, do you want to come over and hang out on Friday night? And I say, maybe. And in my head, I'm thinking, I'll give that a four out of ten. You know, so if Pastor Jared invites me over instead, that'd be like a nine out of ten. So I'm going to say no to you and say yes to him. So I'm just going to say maybe so I don't feel bad about backing out of this commitment. That's what I call the millennial maybe. Friends, we can't be scared of commitment. And when we do say yes, we've got to let our yes be yes and our no be no. If you make a commitment, then follow through. If you commit to go to an event, go. If you commit to serve in the nursery, serve. If you commit to making a financial donation, follow through. Now, obviously there's times where we've got to back out of a commitment. If you're committed to serve in nursery next Sunday and you wake up with a fever, don't show up. We want you to find a sub, right? (laughs) Or something comes up in your family, oh, I'm not being that hard line, but I'm saying that we've got to work to fulfill our commitments. Finally, Christ followers need to be faithful friends. Think of Proverbs 17, 17 says this, a friend loves at all times and a brother's born for adversity. You know, are we friends that love sometimes or most of the time? Or all times? When that friend calls at p.m., and you know that something's up and you know they want to talk? Do we go click and let it go to voicemail? Or do we take time to listen and pray? Are we just a convenient friend? Or are we just a transactional friend where as long as we're getting something out of the friendship, then yeah, we're good. But the moment we don't get anything anymore, then we're like, bye, we'll see you later. A friend loves at all times. Like I said, we wouldn't know anything about David Brainerd if it wasn't for Jonathan Edwards because Jonathan Edwards published David Brainerd's journals after he passed. I want to finish by reading an excerpt from one of his journals. Remember the backdrop. He wrote this in the middle of an incurable disease. (laughs) When I really enjoy God... I feel my desires of him the more insatiable. My thirstings after holiness the more unquenchable. Oh, for holiness. Oh, for more of God in my soul. Oh, this pleasing pain. It makes my soul press after God. Oh, that I might not loiter on my heavenly journey. Why do I think David Brainerd will hear the words or did hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant? Because he was connected to Christ. Jesus is the most important relationship in his life. And if you hear a message like this, if I hear a message like this and think, okay, great, I'm gonna wake up at 6 a.m. tomorrow, I'm gonna read my Bible, I'm gonna pray, and I'm gonna go to No Regrets next year, and I'm gonna make sure I bring somebody to church so I can check that box and we're gonna be set. Missing the mark. Faithfulness comes when we're connected to Christ. If Jesus is not the most important person in your life, then let me save you some time. Don't try to staple on the fruit of faithfulness. It's not going to work. If we want to be faithful, we've got to be connected to Christ. We've got to abide in Him. We've got to make Him the most important person in our life. And then the faithfulness will follow. Faithfulness is not flashy. Faithfulness is not heroic. But it'll change the world for Christ. Let's pray. Father, give us the strength the fortitude, the wisdom, not to measure success like our world might measure it in fulfilled potential or in profit or in greatness or in follows or in popularity, but that we strive for consistent daily faithfulness in our walk with you. And may the fruit of faithfulness flow from an abiding, a real relationship with Jesus as the most important person in our life. Give us some practical ways on how we might grow in our love for Christ as we go throughout our week. In Jesus' name, amen.